Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. our series through the book of Ruth, and Greg and Rachel did an amazing job last week uh, taking us through the gleaning field and gleaning and how they've gleaned in Guatemala, and for us now, we need to find that field in which we are to glean, so if you still have your bracelet on, I'm praying the Lord um, opens your eyes to those things. But we're going to be getting a new series today called Exiles. It's a journey for us. We're going to take 10 weeks to go through the book of First Peter. Now, there's two letters he's written here, First Peter and conveniently Second Peter, Um, But he's written these letters, and we're going to study that one here today. Uh, Today is also, because it's the first Sunday of this fall semester, we have um, sixth graders in here for the first time for the fall. So sixth graders, we're glad that you are here with us today. We are excited for you and all the awkward moments you will have in the next three years of your life. Uh, But we're glad that you're here. We hope you're wearing deodorant. And uh, just looking forward, (laughs) I love you. But seriously, and so I'm glad you're here. We're going to worship together. And um, again, uh, Miss Allison has taught you well. And so now the next step is this. And so we're going to study this together. We're going to study this book of First Peter together. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to put it in context for us. Um, on our website, you can go to our, our SharonChurch.com website. There's a link there again for this series of, of resources, the resources page you can click on and get to. There are some video things to help you understand. There are some books and articles to read. There are some classes if you're into that kind of thing offered by other organizations that you can go on there as well. Um, sermon video and audio will be put on there um, also. But if you want to follow along and get some deeper study, there's a reading plan in there as well for you. So it's all there on our website. Today, we're just going to study the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, and what I want to do, what I hope to do through the power of the Holy Spirit is to put this all in context for us in a way that we're going to understand, in a way that's going to help us uh, moving forward in it. So let's just read these first two verses, then I want to walk back through them slowly. This is the book, the letter of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles, Circle that, underline it, remember it. Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in or by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So let's get this setting. This is a letter that Paul or Peter has written. We're going to learn later in chapter five that Peter is writing this from a place that he calls Babylon. But Babylon is just a code name for Rome. Because they're about to face intense persecution in Rome, the followers of Jesus have learned um, some codes and some symbols to help them communicate uh, while still being safe. So what we've learned from 1 Peter chapter five is that Peter is writing this from Rome. And he's not actually writing. He has Silvanus, also known as Silas, from Acts chapter 15. Silas is actually the penman. Silas is writing this, and it will be then delivered probably by Silas to these churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So back in in verse 1, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we know Peter. Peter was a disciple. He was a fisherman called from fishing to follow Jesus, this new uh, miracle worker prophet that came into town. He performs miracles, calls Peter to follow him. He says, leave your nets and come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, is what Jesus says to Peter. Peter says, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds awesome. And so Peter then follows Jesus. He's a fisherman who becomes a disciple. Journeys with Jesus for three and a half years or so, um, has his ups and his downs like all of us do in following Jesus. Jesus is uh, arrested. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus is uh, crucified. He raises from the dead. Peter and John go to the tomb. And then in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples like divided tongues of fire. And Peter steps into this role that God has for him, this purpose that he has for him, and he starts declaring the gospel with power and boldness. From there, Peter becomes the leader of the early church, eventually becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. At that descending of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter one, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he sends out his disciples, which now makes them apostles, the word apostle means a sent out one or one who is sent with the message. When he says apostle, he's referring to an office in the historical church. He is an apostle. He is the sent out one, one of the sent out ones. This is who he is. So he calls himself an apostle. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, um, we're 30 to 35 years post the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So Peter writes this from Rome as a 60 to 65-year-old man. He's not who he was 30 years ago. So I can give you a biography and talk about who Peter was 30 years ago, but the truth of the matter is who he was 30 years ago is not who he is today. Praise the Lord. And the same is true for you and for me. So I'm not gonna dig into that, just we're gonna let Peter tell us who he is now. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's written, writing this from Rome. And now he says who it's for. This is to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are Roman provinces in Asia Minor, what we know today as modern-day Turkey. And that's important. Paul's very clear, or Peter's clear, and I'm gonna say Paul a lot, but I mean Peter. Peter is clear and important, and he's giving some importance to what's happening. He mentions these places. And it's for us now to know this. So this is in Roman provinces. They're occupied by Rome. We're about anywhere from 63 to 64 AD, even into 65. We're not quite sure when it's written, but around that time, there's some historical clues that help us. So what I wanna do is give us a brief history lesson to remind us, this didn't just happen somewhere else. This happened in history, in the world. This is true. This is historical in many ways. So I want to place this in the scope of history for us. So there's a, a leader by the name of Nero. Emperor Nero has uh, stepped in and taken over Rome. Um, Nero is one of the more infamous emperors of all time. In fact, some presidents have been compared to Nero. Whether you like them or not, this is what's happened. Nero is that guy that if someone is a dictator, someone is cruel, someone um, is, is causing problems for a particular group of people, they often call or relate that leader to Nero. This is Nero. 
In 54 AD, he steps into power in Rome. At the age of 16, he's leading Rome. If you're 16 years old, will you stand up? Anybody here 16? Just do it, Samuel. Okay? Future leaders of Rome. Go ahead and sit down. 16 years old, right? 16. Just learned how to drive. Not well, but learned how to drive. He comes uh, to power. Early on, what we learn about Nero is he is terribly insecure, like most leaders are, and like most 16-year-olds are. And Nero doesn't really want to be an emperor. What Nero wants to be is he, he wants to be a star. He has uh, devoted himself to learning how to play the lyre, which is like a fancy guitar harp. He's learned to play that. He loves acting and playwriting. Uh, he's been known for his roles in some local plays in, the, in his own hometown. So he doesn't really want to be emperor. He wants to be famous. But what he recognizes is by being the emperor, I also get to be famous. And so this creates this weird relationship between Nero and his people where he's not really loving and caring for them, but he is leveraging them for his own fame and his own glory. And if that sounds familiar to other leaders that you know, it probably should. But this is Nero, 16 years old, steps in to power. In 64 AD, uh, a fire happens in Rome called the burning of Rome or the, Rome, the fire in Rome, the Rome fire. This happens in 64 AD, 10 years into his leadership. Now he's 26, maybe 27 years old. And a fire hits. And it hits uh, in this area where there's a bunch of homes and it spreads to what's called the circus, this place where Nero loved because it's where he performed the most. There are coliseums there. Um, there's chariot races happen there. And Rome burns for six straight days. It burns to the ground. There are 14 districts or provinces in Rome. Ten of them are burned to the ground in 64 AD. There's only four left standing. Now, the people had such disdain for Nero at this time that they uh, start to blame it on Nero. So they start to say that Nero is the one who started the fire. Nero started the fire. And so that's, that's this. <laughs> um, confession and repentance should happen at this point. And Nero... Uh, they think that Nero started the fire, and so they, or they begin to blame it on him, hoping that that gets him out of power. And the people are angry with Nero. They can't believe everything that's happening. And so the people make up this story that while Rome was burning, Nero, dressed in his play costume, grabbed a lyre and started playing uh, from the patio of wherever he was and just watched it burn as he played his lyre. And this story circulated and made its way out even into history that many of us have learned this story as fact. Now, historians are telling us that it wasn't fact. This was made up by the people of Rome in their disdain for Nero. And Nero, uh, like most of us, uh, and especially those of us who are 26 and 27 years old and terribly insecure, don't like when people don't like us. And so Nero tries to buy back the affections of his people. He gives them gifts. He gives them money. He gives them things from the government and says, now you will love me. You should love me now. And then what Nero does is he begins to spread a lie that it was the Christians who started the fire. 
because near the place where the fire started would have been uh, homes of Jewish people of the dispersion who have now found themselves in Roman provinces. So Nero now begins to say, no, I didn't start that. The Christians did that because they hate me so much and because they're such awful people. The Christians had made it clear that they aren't like the Romans. They don't uh, do the same things that Romans do. They don't approve of what happens in the Colosseum. They don't approve of what happens in the circus and at those plays that are vulgar. So Nero has a way to say, you know, who started this was the Christians. We, sh- we should all go after the Christians. And by buying back the affection of his people and then pinning it on somebody else, this happens. There's a Roman historian, a politician named Tacitus. And here's what he says. He says, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. I don't know what any of those words mean. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christ, Christus is what he was known by, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, this is what Tacitus calls the faith of the Christians, a superstitious, or a mischievous superstition, again broke out not only in Judea, which was the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So as Nero leverages his power to take advantage of the Christians, he then has to punish the Christians. And so Nero, over the next few years of his life, would persecute and vehemently punish Christians. Tacitus continues, says, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pled guilty. This is the Christians. And then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much for the crime of setting fire to the city as of their hatred against mankind. Tacitus is saying that the way the Christians have lived their lives feels like they hate the rest of us. Mockery at every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses. Some were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Historians tell us that Nero would arrest Christians He would tie them up on poles and he would light them on fire to light his parties. Peter is writing this letter at the beginning of this persecution. Now, some commentators think it was after the fire. Some think it was before, but that he's sensed this coming. The execution of the Christians was a kind of comic relief to the badly hit Romans. Tacitus' remark that they were covered with the skins of beasts and torn by dogs suggests that several Christians were the unwilling actors in a play, The Death of Acteon, a legendary hunter who was devoured by his own dogs. What we're being told is that Nero would take these Christians, put skins on them, and make them 
as actors in his play so that Nero would find fame and Christians would be brutally murdered for the entertainment of the Roman people. In the first letter of Clement, we also read about women being tortured as if they were mythological um, Danaids or the legendary criminal Dirce. The climax of these cruel shows was the mockery of the crucifixion of Jesus. This was where, according to second century tradition, Peter was crucified upside down. So as we study this book, this letter of 1 Peter, we need to keep in context of what's happening. Persecution hasn't reached that fever pitch yet. People aren't being burned to light Nero's parties. But Peter, while in Rome, can smell it coming. You know, you can smell when a rainstorm is coming. The air just smells like it. This is what is happening. Uh, Peter smells persecution coming. And he's got fellow believers, churches he started, pastors he's led, people he loves in these places. And so this letter is an appeal to them. And I think by God's providence, this letter is an appeal to us as Christians in America in 2021. Because there are times that I can smell it coming. And the beauty of the providence of God, according to Acts chapter 17, is God has determined the boundaries of the places and the times in which we would live, which tells me this, church, we were made for this time. We don't tuck tail and run. We don't live in fear. We've been designed and wired and placed in this state, in this country, during this time for such a time as this. We were born for this moment. So Peter smells it coming and he sends this letter to the churches scattered around Asia Minor. So with that context in mind, let's go back and study this introduction, this greeting of Peter. Verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not the man who he was 30-something years ago denying Jesus at the time Jesus was being beaten and tortured. Not that Peter, a mature Peter, a disciplined Peter, a beaten and broken Peter, but a Peter who is fiercely passionate about the gospel. Peter, an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. It's interesting that he would choose, some of your translations would say foreigners or sojourners or travelers, and it would lend, later it would say something like chosen towards the end of that verse. The Greek gets it all jumbled up, but this is the idea of, of chosen exiles, chosen journeyers. Now, Peter is about to appeal to the people who are about to be persecuted in severe ways, but he doesn't go after their behavior. He doesn't say, go get your armor. He doesn't say, go get your swords. He doesn't say, go prepare for battle. He doesn't call them to fight back. What he does first is he says, remember who you are. Peter appeals to their identity first. And if there's anything that the church in America needs today, it's that, an appeal to remember who we are. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King. 
We are loved and chosen by God. We are a royal priesthood. We are representatives of the king of the universe on this planet. That's who we are. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We are travelers in a foreign land. We are not Americans first. We are Christians first. Our identity rests there. Peter is reminding the people in Asia Minor under Roman reign and rule, you're not like them. You're in exile. You're not home yet. You're in the world, but you're not of it. You're in exile. You, you are journeying. This is not your home. This is just temporary. So he pleads to them for their identity pleads to their identity. Now, many of us, if we're writing this letter to um, a son or a daughter or friends of ours saying, hey, I see this is coming. I know for many of us, we would say, so uh, make sure you got enough ammo. Make sure you know the key or the code to your gun safe, right? Make sure you know how to get in there. Probably go practice shooting a few rounds. Print off some pictures of some people and then practice and We'd, we'd encourage people, this, this is how you prepare for battle. But Peter is saying, no, 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 you, you remember who you are. You're not like them. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. This is who we are war, at war against. Remember, you're elect exiles. We need to remember that we are exiles in this land. And I love America. I love the freedoms that we have here. But I can be dangerously close to becoming so comfortable with being an American that I don't pursue Jesus. And we've had it good in America for a long time, haven't we? And the tide is coming in which we're gonna have to decide whose we are. Elect exiles of the dispersion. So they are exiles, but he calls them elect exiles. For some of us, we're already fearful of what's gonna happen by this word elect. Now, Peter is going to dig into some theology here, deeply, deep, deep, deep theology. And I love that he does. There's a writer named David Brooks who in the mid to late, uh, two, like 2015, 16, 17, wrote uh, uh, an article in the New York Times called Making Modern Toughness. Now, I'm gonna read portions of this and it's gonna offend all of us, so just buckle up. Welcome to church. He says, when I asked veteran college teachers and administrators to describe how college students have changed over the years, I often get an answer like this. Today's students are more accomplished than past generations, but they are also more emotionally fragile. I, David Brooks said that. I did not say that. I thought it, but I didn't say it out loud. He says, today, helicopter parents, that's those of us who have raised those emotionally fragile students, that's now. Helicopter parents protect their children from setbacks and hardship. They supervise every playground conflict so kids never learn how to handle disputes or deal with pain. There's a lot of truth to that narrative, but let's not be too nostalgic for the past. A lot of what we take to be the toughness of the past was really just callousness. 
There was a greater tendency in years gone by to wall off emotions, to put on a thick skin, and for some men to be stone-like and uncommunicative, and for some women to be brittle, brassy, and untouchable. David, he said it. I didn't say women are brittle, brassy, and untouchable. He, he said that. It says, and then many people in years past turned to alcohol to help them from feeling anything at all. He says, perhaps it's time to rethink toughness or at least detach it from hardness. Being emotionally resilient is not a defensive posture. It's not having some armor surrounding you so that nothing can hurt you. And I love this. We are all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is. We are all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is. When we haven't thrown ourselves with abandon into a role, when we haven't committed ourselves to certain people, and when we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge. The appeal of Peter to the Christians about to undergo persecution is an appeal for their emotional resilience. And he does so by saying, remember who you are. Remember your purpose. Remember why you're here. Remember that God chose you and God chose to put you on the earth at this time and God chose to put you in a Roman province. You didn't choose that. God did. Remember it. And if God is great and God is good, then you can walk confidently through persecution. Because you have a purpose, you have resilience. Nitschke, the famous philosopher, says that he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Fear for many of us in our world and in generations today is that we don't have a why to live for, at least not one that matters. I'm not talking about likes on your social media posts and followers on Twitter. I'm talking about a purpose that matters. And because we don't have that, we are emotionally fragile. And it's not just the world. The church is fragile too. We have become weak and fragile as followers of Jesus because we've grown so comfortable in the American South Bible Belt. And so we've stopped studying the word. We've stopped seeking God and we've stopped, started asking God, how can you make my life better? How can you make my marriage improve? How can you make me wealthy and healthy and whole? How can you do that? And so we've stopped seeking the heart of God. We've stopped studying doctrine and theology. And now all we want is five steps to a bigger bank account based on the Bible, of course. And we've become weak and so when trials come, we call everything persecution. What they're facing is persecution. You being made fun of because of your bumper sticker or t-shirt is not persecution. But it's coming. And we need to have depth and rootedness to who we are. You see the fragility in the way that we want to fight anyone who says anything different than we believe. You see the fragility in the same way that you see a four-year-old throw a temper tantrum. Now 40-year-olds are doing the same thing. Peter is going to appeal to the churches 
of the dispersion. And he's going to do so not with surface level behavior modification, uh, not with um, uh, flimsy ideas of hope, but with deep, rich theology and doctrine. And in today's churches, churches who teach like that, people are running from, and they're running towards the churches that make them feel good about themselves. Pastor and author John Piper says it this way. He says, could it be that one of the reasons the church is weak today is because we are constantly trying to take practical shortcuts to strength and growth? Maybe we are meant to be strong in the faith and love and hope and joy and practical service, not in spite of doctrine, but because of doctrine. So the next five or 10 minutes is gonna be deep doctrine being taught. And I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to move because I don't know how to do this. It's not in me. Spirit needs to do in us is to impress doctrine, truth, theology, study of God in our souls. Because what's been buoying us so far has tossed us to and fro by the whims of culture. And what we need is an anchor for our souls. And to get an anchor to the ground, we're going to have to go deep. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, watch this in verse two. Elect exiles of the dispersion, verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in or by the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There are words in there that many of us just pretend to know. I want to walk through some of them. And I don't have a theological bent or angle here. I, just, I want to teach the word of God. That's what I want to do. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This word foreknowledge is not that God looked down the scope of time and knew something about us. Is that before we were God intimately loved us. That's what foreknowledge is. Before we were created, God had deep love for us. And parents, you can relate to that, can't you? Because before you had children, somehow you loved them. And when you found out you were pregnant or you found out you'd been matched through adoption, didn't you love that child before they were born or before they were in your home? Didn't you love them? Yes? Yes, you did. It's why, for those of us who have walked through seasons of miscarriage, it's why it hurts so much, because you love that baby. This is not a foreign thought to us, to think that the creator of the universe loved you before you were created. He knew you intimately before you were created. And you weren't chosen, you weren't saved because of your goodness, you were saved because of God's love towards you. Elected exiles of the dispersion, and you were elected, chosen by God, according to his foreknowledge, according to his intimate love for you. Well, then you ask the question, then if God chose me 
then didn't I actually choose him after he chose me? And then you would say, where's my free will? Don't I have free will? And some would say, no, you don't. And some would say, yes, you do. And here's, here's what I would say. You have free will and God chose you. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I don't know. But I know that God initiates his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what I know. How it all plays out, I don't know exactly. But I know that I have nothing to do with earning my salvation. I know that as a fact. Elect exiles, and Peter is reminding the people, because God loved you beforehand, because he knew you intimately, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctification. This word sanctification means to be set apart. You are chosen journeyers, chosen strangers. You've been chosen to be uh, saved by God, and you've been chosen to be an exile. You've been chosen to be in this foreign land by the foreknowledge of, or for, through the foreknowledge of God by the set-apartness of the Spirit. God has done the saving. The Spirit does the sanctifying. The Spirit sets us apart. The Spirit changes our hearts. He begins to change our desires and our priorities and our preferences. And he's, Peter is reminding them, you've been chosen by God. You've been set apart by the work of the Spirit in you. This is who you are. So when Rome starts acting like Rome does, just remember, they aren't set apart. You are. Your Father loves you. And he has set you apart by the Spirit for what reason? For obedience to Christ Jesus. Why were they set apart? Why were they in the world and not of it? Why were they distinguished from the culture? Because God had called them to be obedient. Because God had called them to follow their Lord. That's why. Remember, church, persecution is coming. Remember, churches of the dispersion. Remember... And remember that God loves you, that God foreloved you. He chose you before that he might set you apart, that he might make you distinct so that in your distinctiveness, you would be obedient to Jesus. Because without your distinctiveness, without the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, you don't want to be obedient to Jesus. What distinguishes us as followers of Jesus is we actually want to obey him because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And Peter's reminding them, this is who you are. So when they come for you, and when they come for your children, I want you to remember, you're not like them. This is who you are. Chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. A lot happens here, but it takes from the Old Testament um, sacrificial ideas. Primarily that the sprinkling of blood is how you would seal an offering. So Peter is saying, remember who you are. You're in exile. You're, this is not home for you. And I know that it's not home because you have a different father who loves you differently. He has foreloved you. He has set you apart, sanctified you by the spirit that you might be obedient and that the shedding of his blood has sealed you as his. Christian, today, if you have been sealed by the blood of Jesus, you are an exile in a foreign land today. The question is whether or not you feel like it and you recognize it.
Peter is telling the churches, this is who you are. You gotta live like it. This is who you are. This is your, this is your rootedness. This is who you are. And if God has chosen you and has placed you here, you have nothing to fear because the Spirit has set you apart and has given you power. And in your obedience, you are finding uh, the balm for your souls that you are now being sealed by the sprinkling of his blood. This is who you are, church. And as elect exiles, we don't operate like the world around us. Our preferences are different. Our priorities are different. Our marriages are different. Our child raising is different. Our entertainment is different. And this is not an appeal to separate ourselves off from the world. But we operate by a different source of wisdom. And so while the world rails against people on social media, and while the world attacks principals and assistant principals and bus drivers in Ola, we don't. Because we are elect exiles of the dispersion. And our Father foreknew us. And he sanctified us through his spirit that we might be obedient to Jesus. It's not who we are. It's not who we are. Paul tells us in Romans that our obedience through being set apart is so that we might win the souls of many. It's not obedience to be good people and to get a good marks on some chart in heaven. It's obedience because when we are obedient to Jesus, people are drawn to the goodness of God because that makes us distinct. So we don't operate like the world does. So we make choices and decisions that the world doesn't approve of, but we don't care what the world thinks. We care what the Lord thinks. This is Peter. We don't operate like the world around us. We are to be uncomfortable and unfamiliar in the world in which we live. This should not feel like home to us. And if you've lost the longing for heaven, I think maybe we've lost the understanding that we are exiles. As Brandon makes his way up, just want us to begin to process and think through some of this. A number of years ago, Meredith and I were part of an organization that built sustainable communities in Kenya, and we took a trip over to Kenya and took college students with us. And on the way there, we had a pit stop in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is not really the holiest of places I've been in my life. And so we get to Amsterdam and I've never been there before. And I'm all, already, I'm terrible with directions. So we get there and we divide up into groups and one group's gonna go one direction and I'm gonna take this group uh, to uh, the Anne Frank Museum. The problem is I have no idea where the Anne Frank Museum is. So I'm leading these college students and I'm just trying to follow whatever map I have in whatever language it is. I'm trying to figure it out and walk while also trying to invest in these students and figure all these things out. And I'm just looking at the map and I feel one of the guys tap me on the shoulder and he says, uh, Jeremy, where are we? And I was like, uh, it says here we are in the red light district. <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, eyes down guys, eyes down and we're just walking. Hold your nose. That's not what you think it is. We're walking. We're just going to keep walking through this. But there is this moment for me of I'm terribly uncomfortable here. And I'm unfamiliar with my surroundings. 
And what's on my heart is these college students that I've just led in this place. And I've got to remind them, this is, this is not okay, this is not us, let's just get through here. And I think that's what it means to be elect exiles in a foreign land. We should never be comfortable with the sounds and smells and sights of this world. Our longing is for home. It's why there's some unsettledness in your very soul sometimes. And I would encourage you, follower of Jesus, respond to it. If the Spirit is pricking at you and telling you this is not right, then it's probably not right. We are not to behave like the world because we are not of the world. We are elect exiles in a foreign land, foreloved by God the Father, set apart by the Spirit for obedience in Jesus Christ that we might be sealed by his blood. And then Peter ends this introduction with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What he recognizes is what the people need is not more instruction. It's not guilt. It's not training. It's grace and peace in abundance. Church, that's what we need today. The grace of God on us and through us and the peace of God that settles us in a place that isn't our home to remind us that though we're not home yet, we have a home in the Father. If you bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll finish up. It's a lot happening in 1 Peter and I think a lot happening in our world. I just want to make sure that we're catching it today. Do you feel like an exile here? Maybe you used to, but you didn't like that feeling, and so you've done whatever it takes to make yourself more comfortable. So you've watched things you shouldn't, you've listened to things that you shouldn't, you've gone places where you knew you shouldn't have gone because you just don't like feeling uncomfortable. You don't like feeling like the new kid at school. As followers of Jesus, we're in a foreign land. Not to criticize that land, but to bring them home with us. And maybe today you're here and you don't know Jesus. And so this world feels, feels very comfortable to you. You feel right at home here. But maybe what you're learning and the Spirit is doing today is that he's moving in your heart to make you realize, you know what, this actually isn't my home. Something's changing in me. Well, that's the call of the Holy Spirit drawing you back into the arms of your Father. If that's you today, and he's calling you to salvation, <clears throat> the way home is by confessing that you're a sinner, believing that Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who died in your place to set you free from that and to unite you with the Father. And then confess that he is Lord. You live your life like he is Lord of your life. That's where you find salvation. You can do that right now, today. There are some of us today who need to be reminded that we're exiles. And the patterns of the world have made their way into our homes and into our hearts, into our jobs, into our calendars, into our checkbooks and checking accounts. And we need to repent of that. And remember that we are strangers in a foreign land. Set apart. Loved by the Father. God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for your plan for our lives. I thank you that nothing has happened that hasn't first been sifted through your sovereign hands. 
So even today, you've placed us in this place at this time to read this book with these people and sing these songs. And it's not a coincidence. Nothing is accidental. Everything is by appointment today. And God, I pray that you would raise up in us an uncomfortability. Make us stir crazy again. Make us feel like outsiders. And remove the desire to clamor for attention and to clamor for acceptance by anyone but you. And that we would be settled in the fact that you've already loved and accepted us before creation. And we are yours. And may the world take note of a people who are in exile and wonder how to get there too. May this community and this city and this county and this state and nation and world be changed by the elect exiles in Ola, Georgia. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.